This podcast was brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton, originally airing on SiriusXM. This is the Work and Life podcast, which explores how to create harmony among the different parts of life, work, home, community, and the private self, your mind, body, and spirit. Here's your host, founding director of Wharton's Work-Life Integration Project and author of the bestseller, Total Leadership, Professor Stu Friedman. Dr. Benoit Dubay is an associate professor of clinical psychiatry at the Perlman School of Medicine. He's the associate vice provost, and he's the inaugural chief wellness officer at the University of Pennsylvania. Indeed, he's the first in the Ivy League to hold such a position, which is in itself a response to the urgent mental health issues facing college campuses. Dr. Dubay is a core member of the University Life Team, directing wellness initiatives across the university and overseeing a new division of student wellness services that includes the Offices of Alcohol and Other Drug Program Initiatives, Campus Health, Counseling and Psychological Services, Penn Violence Prevention, and the Student Health Service. He began at Penn in 1997 as a resident and is now an attending physician at the Hospital of the University of Pennsylvania, Penn Presbyterian Medical Center, and Pennsylvania Hospital. He received a Provost's Award for Teaching Excellence in 2011, earned his medical degree from the University of Montreal in 97, and a Bachelor of Science in Psychology from Concordia University in 1992. In this episode, I sit down with Benoit to discuss the importance of creating a culture of wellness decreasing the stigma associated with mental illness, and making it easier for people to ask for help. We talk about some of the changes he's making in the short run since he began as chief wellness officer just a few months ago, as well as his vision for long-term change. For starters, students now have no wait time to speak with a counselor. They're now available 24-7, and that's a significant change. But the bigger picture is perhaps more exciting. He sees a future in which mental health and physical health issues are all addressed in the same physical space. So he'd like to create an environment where students learn the skills to manage stressful situations, to modulate their emotions, to see stress as an opportunity for growth, and to know that it's okay to ask for help and that that's all a part of the health services environment in which students live. He envisions a new academic department in which research, science, theory, and practice related to wellness, whether it's in nursing, psychology, medicine, philosophy, or elsewhere throughout the university, are brought into one hub of innovation. Ultimately, he'd like Penn students to bring evidence based practices for producing wellness into the world when they graduate. I hope you like the Work and Life podcast, and if you do, I'd much appreciate it if you would rate it and review it on iTunes so others are more likely to find it and enjoy it too.
Now, without further ado, get set to listen to and learn from a leading expert on health and wellness, a whole person approach to learning and healing on campus. It's Dr. Benoit Dubay. Thank you again for being here. It's a pleasure. What? Let's start with what inspired you to bring a wellness mindset to campus life. Um, that's a really interesting question, and it actually wasn't my idea, if I'm totally honest. The president and the provost deserve due credit for this. Um, there were challenging times at Penn mm -hmm. in recent years, and they decided collectively that while we thought we were doing the right thing collectively as a community, we obviously weren't doing enough, or maybe we weren't doing the right things. Hmm. And there was a year-long self-study, if you will. Um, are there specific vulnerabilities here? What are some of the challenges? Are we addressing them the way we think we are? Are we successful at it? And from a year-long reflection and the beginning of multiple campus conversations about really hard subjects, about giving our members of our community permission to be vulnerable, about role modeling from senior leadership that it's okay to talk about struggles, there was, uh, there was a realization that while there were many efforts campus-wide to address these challenges in mm -hmm. college mental health, we needed to find a centralized, dedicated, focused center to bring everybody together. Mm -hmm. That way we could be more effective. That way we could create synergies. That way we could create bridges. One of the unique challenges at Penn is that we have 12 schools mm -hmm. and uh, we have 12 silos de facto. And the downside to that is that maybe there's 12 people doing the same thing. Mm -hmm not realizing that they could collaborate and be more successful with their peers. With this new reorganization of health and wellness, in my capacity of chief, as chief wellness officer, I can bring these people together. And mm -hmm. that's happened already. And I've seen light bulbs go off when folks from Wharton realized that nursing was doing similar things and so on and so forth. Mm -hmm. However, we also have to appreciate that the solutions that work best for learners here at Wharton may not work best for students at the veterinary school or at the dental school. So it's a it's a juggling act to create synergies but also respect the specificity of each of our schools. So there's some some broad initiatives and, and, and ideas that you have. We're going to get into those and then those that might be specific to different segments of the student population. Correct. Um, so would you say that the primary motivation for uh, a, a keener uh, focus on this issue was the, the – I mean, what, what, what was it? I'm, I'm speculating that there were some very high-profile series of, of suicides just a few years ago that, that put our university in the national spotlight as a, as a kind of hub uh, for – you know, stress-induced uh, mental health problems, including suicides. Was that it, or was there? What else was was bubbling up that to cause uh, our senior leadership to invest more? Um, there's certainly a temporal association, right? There were some very public tragic events. Mm -hmm. um, Penn likes to be. Uh, and has been in the spotlight for many reasons. Mm -hmm. And so when you brag about being eminent, you also expose yourself to potential criticism. Mm -hmm. It's also interesting to take a step back at the same time as these tragic events were uh, being experienced here by the whole community. 
I mean, the CDC also released uh, data. The Center for Disease Control said, mm-hmm. hey, like, there's a problem here. Suicide rates are going up. And mm-hmm. while we experienced it very, very acutely here on campus, yep. um, there's it's been a national an problem. Exactly. So then the leadership here, to their credit, said, okay, even if it is a national problem, it's our responsibility as educators. What can we do to better serve the needs of our community? Mm-hmm. What can we learn from this? What, how can we use, transform these tragedies into collaborative efforts to hopefully find antidotes to these problems? Mm-hmm. So how long has it been since you stepped oh, into this role? I've stepped into this role officially August 15th. Of this year? Yes. All right. So you just started. <laughs> That's uh, right. And I'm sure you're learning a lot really fast. <laughs> Tremendously, very quickly. Well, so there are so many different pieces that I could think of off the top of my head. Let me list a few. Okay. Uh, addressing stigma so that students feel comfortable asking for help. Providing timely and effective help uh, through the various um, centers for uh, providing uh, all kinds of resources to students like those that I mentioned earlier that are now under your purview. Addressing academic pressures and strains, um, addressing family expectations and the involvement of parents, perhaps as you know, those who helicopter in or put, put additional pressure on kids, or maybe don't provide enough, uh, you know, access to to them and to you know, so that they can be helpful. Um, which you know, a, a lot of people argue, uh, helicopter parenting has deprived uh, this whole generation of. Uh, the, the skills to be able to cope with the rough and tumble of everyday life because they've been overprotected. Uh, there's fraternity and sorority hazing and drinking and drugs in general on campus. All right, I could go on, but let me stop there. Uh, what What's the low-hanging fruit? Where, where, where do you, you want to invest your attention and resources first and foremost? All right, so let's probably the low-hanging fruit has to do with giving more students more access more quickly to services. Mm -hmm. And over the summer, we launched 24-7 access to clinicians. So we went from a model where students would need to call in, leave a short summary of why they were seeking help through CAPS or Counseling and Psychological Service Center, Mm -hmm. and then wait for a call back. And that wasn't always convenient. Maybe they were in class. It was a very long, frustrating process for everyone. And regrettably, sometimes students would give up or they would seek help elsewhere. Mm-hmm. We transform that model into a single phone number that gives 24-7 access to a clinician. There is no longer What is a, that number? So the number is the general CAPS number. Mm-hmm. So we use the number that existed for our Counseling and Psychological Services Center, and we didn't, we didn't change it so mm-hmm. that it would be easy to remember. And um, when, as... By having students call this uh, university number, Mm -hmm. uh, we are able to give them immediate access to a clinician. And that is at any time of the day or any time of the night. Mm -hmm. They don't need to worry about our schedule and our business hours. They can just call at any point. We have uh, data from them, and uh, students do make good use uh, of the service. They can call when they're ready, and we will have someone Mm -hmm. that's – Ready and all they need to remember is this phone number two one five eight nine eight seven zero two one. So the eight nine eight seven zero two one number is the number always has been the number to caps. Right. So students didn't need to remember another number. Um, 
they can just call and just kind of as a so that's a 24-7 access to somebody who's going to be uh, on the line to talk to you. That's correct. And that's correct. have you seen a, a, an uptick since that change in people accessing that resource? We've seen an uptick in satisfaction rates. Mm-hmm. We've seen an uptick in utilization rates, but we're also comparing a resource that was not as available before. Mm-hmm. Um, and speaking of phone numbers, it's always important, and this is University of Pennsylvania-centric, but we have when students are having or experiencing any distress or have any questions, we have a centralized 898 help number. Mm-hmm. And if they call 898 help, there is someone who is associated with the Department of Public Safety who can redirect callers. Mm-hmm. And this can be parents too. It doesn't mm-hmm. it is not limited to students. They can direct them to the correct resource. All right. So that's one and that's that's pretty easy, uh I, I imagine when you think about some of the other things that I just uh enumerated as as uh, sources of strain and uh, stress that that induce uh, problems for for our student community what else are you thinking of as priorities essentially I, in order to answer your question I have to go back to what I was tasked with so okay. when the president and the provost created this division and this position they essentially said We'd like you to re-examine how we deliver health and wellness services to our students. Is there a better way? Is there a more holistic way mm. to do that? The second task was... More holistic. What do you think they meant by that? I'm pretty sure they meant uh, taking away this arbitrary distinction we make between physical health and mental health mm. so that um, we acknowledge that brain dysfunction which is what mental health symptoms are about, most often frequently will manifest as bodily symptoms. The anxious Mm -hmm. student can present to a traditional primary care setting with upset stomach, trouble Mm -hmm. sleeping, trouble concentrating, tremors, so on and so forth. And it's a lot easier to report somatic complaints than it is Mm -hmm. to report mental health or emotional complaints. Because of stigma. Because of stigma. So stigma has many barriers. Um, One of them is physical. One of them can be purely peer-related. So we are also working very, very diligently with our student groups, Mm -hmm. Active Minds, to name a few, uh, Penn Wellness, Penn Connect, the RAP line, that Reach a Peer hotline, the Penn Benjamins, the Penn Franklins, all of these student organizations. And if you're part of a student organization I omitted, I'm sorry. Those are the ones I thought of on the top of my head. Mm -hmm. But we've been meeting with them regularly to make sure that their services are well broadcast, to make sure that they are our allies. Together, we will normalize what it's like to express distress. So, so you were tasked with giving, with with creating a, a, a more holistic approach to wellness uh, on campus, and and part of that meant to address both physical and mental health as as both important sources of uh, concern uh, for uh, for our university. How does that help? to sort of inform what your priorities are now in terms of the issues that you want to address first and foremost? Well, the first thing to appreciate is that there's short-term goals, there's low-hanging fruit, and right. then there's long-term goals, right? Mm-hmm. So let's let's fast forward to the future. The ideal setting would be for us to have one clinic with one waiting area so that the student who has debilitating and crippling anxiety mm-hmm. goes to the same area, is greeted by the same person, 
then the student who has a sore throat, they won't go away. No one knows why they're there. Uh-huh. They share the same waiting area, and it's the same clinic. So it's, they're not wearing a badge that says, hi, I've got a mental health problem. Right. Don't, and don't if, think me weird. Right. So, so then we would no longer, students would no longer worry about, oh, I don't want to go to that clinic. I don't want people to see me going in there because they think I'm weak. That, that I'm weak. Yeah. Yes. So that is, is that the primary source of, uh, uh, you know, what what inhibits people from seeking help, that they w- or f- fear being seen as weak? Maybe. I think um, some people have a hard time labeling their own emotions. Mm-hmm. Depends what people, what expectations people bring to their college experience. Maybe they just assume that you have to pull all-nighters all the time, and then if you mm-hmm. can't, you just can't cut it. Maybe people have heard horror stories and they'll generalize from anecdotal stories and then they won't just go. There's lots of reasons. Mm -hmm. But the more we can streamline the process and the more we're sending the message that your health and wellness are a one-stop area, then the better. That makes a lot of sense. But just so that people don't get too excited, that's not going to happen by September, right? This, what I've outlined is Mm -hmm. what we would like ultimately to be able to achieve. You've got to have a vision. Yeah, absolutely. That is the vision. That's the holistic approach to health and wellness. One place to go for any kind of illness. uh, What? what, what How would you want a student or faculty member on campus to to think about this place that you have in mind? Well, actually, I'd add an extra layer to that. Yeah. So while I've ta- described a clinic where anxiety and you know heartburn are treated in the same clinical mm-hmm. space, um, I also want us to expand our vision for what this space could be. There would be a clinical space where we deliver services to our students. There would also be a space where we teach life skills, where we have stigma-fighting uh, programming for our students to attend, where all of our student groups who have all these wonderful, effective initiatives mm-hmm. have a home where they can have meeting spaces, where we can have community yoga, where we can do sleep hygiene hygiene training. Mm-hmm. We would bring all of the wellness-enhancing programming under the same roof. But, mm-hmm. and this is where Penn is really, I think, um, giving me permission to dream big, my vision would also include a third layer that would say, we are, after all, an institution of higher learning. Can we integrate the academic function into that space? Can we integrate theory, science, and practice of wellness and have an academic department there? Either it's its own unique wellness department or it's a hub, an innovative space where psychology and nursing and epidemiology come together creatively to study and design wellness-enhancing interventions that is the ultimate vision of what we can do. Penn is a resource-rich institution, and I'm very fortunate that they've given mm-hmm. me license to dream big and come up with a vision that can ultimately help our Penn students in the moment, but then also encourage our students as they leave the safety of our campus to go out and change the world and bring these expectations as they go out and thrive Mm -hmm. beyond the confines of our campus. By what they learn here about how to do that. Exactly. I'm in. Good. You can sign me up for that because that's that's really part of what I've been, uh, a a central part of what my work has been about these 35 years here at the the University of Pennsylvania. And I think that is uh, a great approach. Are there universities that are doing anything like that? 
So uh, to my knowledge, there are not. What we know when we um, talk to our peer, near-peer institutions, there's definitely colleges that have co-located spaces. So it's mm-hmm. one building. I mean about having a department, an no. academic department mm-hmm. that, that focus on, focuses on the, the, the theory, research, and practice of uh, creating a, a, a wellness culture. Well, maybe we do. So the Center for Positive Psychology here at yes. Penn, right, mm-hmm. is fairly well known, mm-hmm. and you know, um, they've been very, very well recognized in their trailblazing research and accomplishments. And they've actually we had been... their executive director here in the studio uh, two weeks ago. Oh, well, that's great. And they're actually we're partnering together. We've put together a measurement task force, and by that, what we want to do is. In the spirit of challenging ourselves to do things better, mm-hmm. you know when we say there's a lot of distress on campus, mm-hmm. we're using the data that you quoted earlier today, right? So 40% of anxiety, of depression rather, 60% of anxiety. But what if we actually had a measure that said our wellness metrics uh, show that we are above average, below average? So we've actually partnered with measurement specialists from Gallup the Gallup poll people, Mm -hmm. and from other institutions. And we want to create, we've challenged ourselves at creating a wellness measurement so that we can, one, measure if our interventions are successful and go beyond simply extrapolating from, well, if people are more depressed and more anxious, they're not well. We want to be able to flip that around and say our interventions are successful. What does success look like? Exactly. What what are the key indicators of uh, a successful wellness uh, culture on campus? How would how would you know if what you are trying to do is working? So that's the challenge we're trying to tackle right now because we can extrapolate from measures that have been around, measures of depression, measures of anxiety. We can look at graduation rates. Like there's lots that we know we can use now, what we're challenging ourselves to do is to create an actual wellness measure and what that would mean. And this also allows us to just really broaden our scope here and acknowledge that wellness is not just about mental health. Mm. Wellness is about a lot of things. Wellness is about reaching a point where you can say that you feel like you're thriving that you feel Mm. like you're flourishing. And in order to achieve that state, what have you done? What have you been able, what, how have you been able to integrate competing demands? What skills did you use to be able to do that? How have you been able to modulate your emotions? So there's a lot Mm -hmm. in there. And that's what we're trying to just unbundle so that we can develop measures Mm -hmm. to then say, hey, I think that our wellness interventions are working. And looking at the, the big picture idea that you, that you sketched out earlier of, of uh, sending students out into the world following graduation to make positive change happen in the parts of the world that they influence, um, what would that look like? The best way to predict the future is to look at the past. We had a student here at Penn Uh, over 10 years ago, who lost her brother to suicide. And she was 
confident that had her brother not felt embarrassed or ashamed of being depressed, he probably would have sought help. Had he sought help, he'd still be alive today. So Mm. she transformed an extremely painful and tragic life Mm -hmm. event and created a student organization called Active Minds. Mm -hmm. Active Minds today Mm -hmm. is all over the United States, Mm -hmm. right? So this is the power and the potential that resides on our campus. We need to harness On any campus, really. But if I'm going to make realistic uh, predictions, I'm going to use what we know to have happened here. Yeah. But then it's also an invitation to all of our peer institutions to trust their students, to really uh, harness their potential, encourage them, listen to their ideas, don't give them a solution, ask them to build a solution with you. Mm-hmm. That's how we become successful. And just to close the loop on Active Minds, and the reason yeah. I picked it as an example is there was data that was published recently over the summer that showed that having active collaboration between university leadership and active minds or similar student organizations actually does decrease the amount of stigma surrounding asking for help, Mm -hmm. receiving help, Mm -hmm. and following through on help recommendations on university campuses. That's the secret of success here. It's really working and partnering with students. Mm. Students have the answers. They do. They do. And we just have to take the time to listen. They certainly know what the need is. So taking the time to listen, that's not easy. No, it's not easy. Uh, It takes time, Mm -hmm. which is self-evident. But in the moment, it also means allowing oneself to decide what we're going to prioritize when we spend our time. And Mm -hmm. sitting down and having thoughtful, meaningful conversations with key constituents, and by that I mean students, Mm -hmm. that's how we'll start building solutions together. What should parents know that they don't know? What do you encounter that is uh, problematic from uh, the point of view of what parents do or don't do that that you'd like to try to change somehow? Um, you know, I think the, the key here is about expectations and also about recognizing uh, a few things. When College students come here on this campus and any other campus. It's really exciting. It's an accomplishment, but it's really, really nerve-wracking. It's kind of scary, but usually the scariness is something that people just kind of deal on their own secretly. Mm -hmm. Um, And we talk about that a lot, and I think those are fairly self-obvious. But what we don't talk about a lot, and we should, is it's also an exciting time and a scary time for parents. It's not easy to let go of your kid. I mean, you want to because you know it's the right thing, but then you start to worry. Will the university be there? What services are there? Um, And it's also this competing tension with, I know I need to let my kid grow up and learn to be independent, and they need to, you know, fall on their knees a few times and then learn that they can get up and be successful. But most parents, I suspect, are probably not ready for that. If I can speak from my own personal experience <laughs> when I'm dropping off my first child at, uh, at school, I, I got uh, what eventually was diagnosed as vertiginous vertigo. Oh, wow. So this was migrainous vertigo. Uh, sorry. 
so I used to have migraines when I was a kid uh, and a young adult. Those disappeared, but they recurred as a, ver- a vertigo. Wow. Um, took a, a long time to diagnose it, but I got literally sick with like dizzy as I left the campus, dropping him off that first day. And you know, in retrospect, I look back and and realize you know that was a really stressful moment because it meant a significant change in my life and our family's life, of course. Uh, and so I, I just I know that most parents feel something along those lines. Um, my mother's words to me when she dropped me off uh, at campus in 1970 at the State University of New York in Binghamton was, don't smoke too much pot. That's what she called out as she drove away. Uh, unfortunately, I did not heed her warning and spent most of my – never mind. Uh, what, what, so how do we help parents with that very difficult transition? I, so I suspect that most schools have orientation sessions for the parents of freshmen. I think that it's become more and more recognized that while as a university – We have a primary responsibility to students, but if we don't partner with parents, it's not going to work well Mm -hmm. because a frightened student who is looking for help in – during their first semester who doesn't know where to reach out for help, who isn't aware of all the resources will probably reach out to their parents. So we need to build allyships with parents. Mm. So a pen parent could say, well, I'm not sure, but I remember they told me 898-HELP. If Mm -hmm. you call that number, then someone will direct you to the right resource. I have, in my 35 years of teaching here, heard from an occasional parent, how come my son got a C-plus in your class? I mean, it's been a while since I heard that. Um, But, uh, you know, parents can be over-involved and place really high pressure on their kids Oh, this is particularly true at Wharton, I would say. But I think it's it's you know it's it's true um, not just for students here at, at our university, but in many schools where uh, the you know the demands to to perform uh, at a very high level cause people to feel like they are failing if they get anything less than an A, and. Uh, you know that can make students feel really bad about themselves when they when they don't. So, do you address that issue in your um, outreach to parents and your relationship with uh, the parents of especially freshmen? Yes, but, but really students throughout. Yep. So that's definitely part of our programming, if you will. We have a panel of university uh, senior leaders who speak to the parents about the multiple resources. And Chaz, our beloved university chaplain, talks to parents about what it was like for him as a freshman at this institution. Mm-hmm. His narrative, his story is very powerful. It resonates with parents. And it gives parents permission to say, it's okay that you struggle because I've heard similar stories from mm-hmm. people who are teaching you, people who mm-hmm. are taking care of you. Mm-hmm. There's something about um, wanting to address the culture of perfectionism that exists. Now, you speak very knowingly about what goes on at Wharton. I have similar experiences at the School of Medicine over sure. 15 years. Um, and it's important to, as educators, remind ourselves that these are teachable moments. These are moments where we can use our of ourselves and share of our story with our students to normalize that. So maybe you didn't get honors or an A or whatever mm-hmm. the grading schema, 
So yeah, I understand that you're disappointed, but your career is not over because I failed the boards the first time I took them or whatever the, mm-hmm. you know, applicable story would be. And Penn, even before I got here, had a resiliency project, Penn Faces, where we videotape students uh, who talked about their struggles and their journey and the school, the, the tools and the skills that they needed to stay afloat. And that, yes, stress is a part of the academic journey here, mm-hmm. but it doesn't As is mean, failure. Yeah, exactly. And we can learn from failure, right? So we can see we should reframe these events as mm-hmm. opportunities for growth, mm-hmm. not as failures. Mm-hmm. Setbacks are are times when you can actually just kind of recalibre and then just resource and then move forward, maybe in the same direction or not. And we need to give our learners that permission. There's uh, uh, an initiative at Smith College, I think it is. You probably know about this, but maybe you don't. Uh, I think they started this a couple of years ago, and my understanding is that some other schools have picked this up where um, they, they essentially require students to write uh, a story about a time when you know they were. I, I'll use the term failure when they when they when they had a failure experience. Uh, just to have everyone tell such a story to make it absolutely normal. Everybody messes up. Not every not every goal is is achieved. And you know what we're trying to uh, help everyone understand here is that that's part of living. Exactly. And and what we need to help you with is how to cope when when things don't go as exactly as you want or as your parents want or as your very competitive peers might expect you to 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 achieve what do you think about that um that resonates with me because so we at the school of medicine in a, f- a few years ago had something called a festival of failures uh-huh. where we would invite faculty members right and it's exactly the same thing so that if you hear it from someone you respect mm-hmm. someone you look up to then it kind of normalizes and validates that your struggles are just part of the journey yeah. a number of years ago in the undergraduate class i teach on on teams uh, a student asked me, uh, so, you know, tell us your story. And I said, no, you, you're not interested. And he said, no, no, we want to hear about, like, how you got to be where you are. So uh, that ended up being a part of the course every every year. I, I It's due story time, and I take a half hour, and I, I basically recount the many ways in which I've messed up. <laughs> and they're just riveted by this because they think, wow, there's a human being just like me. Uh, and I can, you know, I can, I can be a fulfilled and, and productive person that, you know, feels pretty good about himself uh, and his life uh, and still have had many, many, you know, detours along the path. Um, so I, I think more of us should do that. Do you think parents should be doing that as well for their kids? I think there's a time and a place for that. Uh-huh. But in principle, yes, I agree. And kudos to you for incorporating that in the classroom. Mm-hmm. I think it takes courage to express vulnerability when you're in a position of authority. I mean, you will grade these students and they look up to you. And allowing vulnerability in the classroom and role modeling that, I think, is a very powerful message that you're giving your students. Uh, Faculty Senate is very much on board with similar initiatives. Like, for example, the required writing course at Penn, there's been an agreement that some of the writing assignments would surround themes of wellness, thriving, flourishing, resiliency. Uh We want to make sure that if it is part of our mission to infuse wellness in the culture here, 
it's not just on Locust Walk. It's not just on the main That's drag the on central, campus. Exactly. The central artery that runs through our beautiful campus. It has to be somehow included in the academic fiber of our institution. And there's absolutely, definitely a resounding partnership with Faculty Senate because we realize we're all in this together. Let's let's turn to this subject that I, I um, mentioned, and that is um, the balance, let's call it, between uh, sensitivity to the emotional needs of, of students who might be um, put off by certain topics that are emotionally uh, challenging to 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 address in a in a social setting, um, and. And the need for us as a university to have, uh, you know, uh, opportunity to to challenge students, to push them, to to propel them forward, to take them out of their comfort zones. Uh, you know, I start my courses by saying, "Okay, my job here is to make you a little uncomfortable," and I'm pretty good at that. So uh, I, I don't want to hurt you, but I'm here to provoke you. I'm here to you know challenge you to to stretch your thinking, and I expect you to do the same. So, any questions about that? And they're like, oh, "Okay, that that seems right." But uh, I'm glad he's mentioning that. How do we? How do you think about that issue of of managing, you know, the the tension, the balance between, uh, you know, provocative ideas and people feeling overly sensitive, or just being sensitive to the, you know, the addressing of, of certain hot topics, race, power, politics. Yeah, so that's really interesting, and I'm actually of two minds on this. So on the one hand, I think that our learners expect trigger warnings. I understand them, and I've worked to include them, and I've also learned that sometimes I wasn't as clear as I should have been in my trigger warnings. For example, last year we had a class on child abuse, and I pretty much was sure I had done it correctly, and it turns out I Hmm. hadn't. So. So I understand the need for it, and I understand that it is challenging for faculty who grew up or went to school in a time when there was no such thing, and you just kind of were able to kind of go with the flow. But on the other hand, I'm also wondering, beyond the confines of our university, the world does not have trigger warnings. Right. So as an institution of learning, where is it that we – or are we failing our students by not preparing them to acquire the skills to sit with uncomfortable emotions, mm-hmm. to be able to modulate their emotional reactions and be reflective yes. and not just reactive. Yes. So those are the two the, – the, in my mind, those that's the tension is between the expectations and meeting the expectations of learners where they are and offering right. trigger warnings, but then wondering, are we doing our learners a disservice by – because the real world doesn't have trigger warnings, so we're right. not preparing them for right. that. Right. So how would you advise me as a faculty member in addressing that question? And what would you say to the faculty community about that? I would basically paraphrase what I just said. <laughs> I would acknowledge that mm. um, it is expected in academic circles now mm-hmm. to offer trigger warnings because it is part of the culture in our college. However, it is also important to acknowledge that beyond the safety of the classroom, there is the real world out there that does not have these safety nets and that students should be invited to ask themselves, had I been confronted with this material on my own in the workplace five years after graduation without a trigger warning, 
how would I have handled that and ask themselves what skills or tools they think they need to acquire to be better prepared. So, so is it then for the faculty member to, to, to do that very framing? That's pretty yes. complicated. Um, well, I think I could probably manage that, but I'm not sure. And, and I, you know, I'm attuned <laughs> to these matters. Yeah. Uh, yeah, well, I didn't say it was simple. That's, that's true. And I'm also not sure that that is the solution, right? Mm-hmm. I hadn't thought about this in a little bit. Um, but this is – I think it's like there's a tension between what we know we should do as uh, teachers and educators. Mm-hmm. And part of that is also giving our students the opportunity to acquire skills and tools yes. to be successful citizens once they leave our university. So can you tell me what happened in that class on child abuse where you – didn't give the proper warning and and what happened. Most importantly, what did you learn from that? I think others who are listening would be interested. I'm particularly interested in what you discovered from that episode. You willing to talk about that? Yeah, yeah. I mean, sure. I um, and you know, I, I give. I'm uh, grateful to my students because mm-hmm. I learned from that experience. Mm-hmm. Well, you were uh, open to it, obviously. True. I was in the moment. I was not. <laughs> okay. Maybe. And then the moment I was a little taken aback because I was really blindsided so by what the happened? feedback I received. So the setup is there is a class on the schedule on the calendar that says child abuse. There is a child abuse session. At the beginning of the child abuse session, there is a faculty member who says this material will be challenging. But this is why it's important to you as future physicians. And at the end of the session, there was, by the same faculty, an invitation to see them during office hours that afternoon. I thought that this was a sufficient and generous trigger warning. Uh And student feedback uh, the following week was that students felt a little blindsided, were not prepared for this, and had wanted more explicit instructions as to what to do or what resources would be available Ah. to deal with. And the one thing we did not say, which I humbly acknowledge I I had uh, missed, was that for some students who themselves had been victims or survivors of abuse, this could be especially stirring or challenging. And we admittedly didn't say that. Ah. We had made a blanket statement. Ah. So So you didn't address the specific population or in in the room that you, had you thought about it more, would have known would be particularly uh, sensitive. Correct. Hmm. Correct. Oh, that's something we can all do. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I did not repeat that mistake a second time. (laughs) I'll bet. No, I'm sure that was was a painful learning experience for you, but it sounds like you modeled for them what it takes to grow from an experience with emotionally challenging topics. Uh, so, And you know the, the other takeaway No point. wonder they chose you for this role. Uh. And what? <laughs> you know what you're doing. <laughs> the, you know, the, I think the other important part of this is that it's, again, an example of role modeling, mm-hmm. of showing that we can, we should all be humble, acknowledge mistakes, and learn from them. Yes, yes, yes. What's the most important message you want to convey to listeners, uh, whether they are college students, parents of college students, employers of people who have college students uh, in their lives who they're trying to help? What, what's the big idea that you want to make sure people hold on to? I think that um, the all-encompassing message would have to do with reframing stress 
as not a sign of weakness, not a sign of vulnerability, but rather as an opportunity for growth and a permission to ask for help if it becomes unmanageable. We all have different thresholds of what we can handle. And if at any point stress becomes the source or triggers a feeling of um, becoming overwhelmed or not being able to keep your head above water, it's okay to ask for help. Hmm. And to do that without being intrusive, what's, what's your guide there? Everybody has uh, their own, uh, their safety net, if you will. They mm-hmm. can ask, it can be as simple as ask your roommate. It can be call your best friend. It can be go online. It can be call the 24-7 clinician service. Mm-hmm. Um, there's not one solution. Mm-hmm. But as long as individuals allow themselves to access one solution, whichever one fits best for them, that's the first important step. It's always the most important one. And as long as it's taken, mm-hmm. then things will get better. Encouraging people to get help is, yes. is another message that I convey to all my students in every class yep. that I teach. And it's such an important one. Last question, and it's one that I've been asking all my guests all year as uh, my uh, s- another small contribution I'm trying to make to this conversation. And that is, how do you bring compassion to your working life? Compassion is part of my working life by allowing myself to listen actively, generously in the moment, giving myself simply by being present. Benoit Dubé, I really appreciate your taking the time to uh, join me in the studio tonight and uh, more so appreciate what you're trying to do to help to change the culture on our campus and uh, I I applaud your efforts and very much want to continue to support you in addition to having you back on the show to talk about other other topics as they arise that you want to bring to our audience. Uh, Is there anything you want to say about where people can find out more about the work that you're doing? Um, That's interesting. I I don't have administrative support yet. I don't have an office set up yet. You're just getting started. I'm just getting started. All right. Well, we'll we'll put that up on our website for more uh, as you get more information about where people can learn more about you and and what we're doing here at the University of, of Pennsylvania. Thank you so much for being here tonight. Really appreciate it. I'm grateful for the opportunity. Thank you. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.